Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Christy Jansen, Chief of Staff here at the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brudico, our, the Academy's president and founder. And of course, Benjamin Schwartz, our production intern for the radio show, is also here. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. We are recording this show on September 5th, 2018. Before I get going, I want to invite our listeners to reach out to us at info at worldbusiness.org if you have questions or comments about the show today or any shows we've heard from the past. And if you have anything you want us to discuss in the future, we'd love to hear from you. And if you like the show, another plug, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio, or however you listen to the, uh, the radio show. Uh, it will help more people find us. So when uh, Ronaldo and I were talking about what we wanted to talk about today, the phrase, every day is more collateral damage, kept coming up. And I think that we're going with that. Uh, that's the theme today. We're going to do an update on trade and tariffs we've been talking about. We'll do a little bit of update on global currency and the global situation, immigration, and we'll jump into some new topics as well. Well, with that, Ronaldo, how's it going? And uh, what's the top of your list to, to address on today's show? I think uh, continuing chaos. Continuing chaos. Okay. You know, we talk at this about this on the show often, but sometimes when it's even more relevant than others. And so I don't feel like I'm repeating as much as I'm trying to punctuate the belief we have that politics and the economy are inseparably intertwined. These are entangled twins, to use a metaphor from quantum physics. So those who would choose to ignore the political consequences of what's happening in the United States today are actually also then choosing to ignore their own financial well-being. And uh, we're going to talk about tariffs in a second, but before I do, I want to just mention that several things have happened which are really quite remarkable. When you look at the election just uh, this week in New York, where a 10-term congressman who never had a serious opponent, this is the, in Massachusetts, rather, this, this is the John F. Kennedy Tip O'Neill seat in Massachusetts, a woman named, a, a black woman, so she'll be the first black woman to ever serve in Congress from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Aina is her name, and she, uh, she's done something that is really quite remarkable in that she has basically articulated how severe the times are and that therefore business as usual, even with a good congressman, is not good enough. And that's a tough pitch to convince people of unless people are genuinely getting very scared. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you have a budget, in her case, her budget was a tiny fraction of uh, her opponents. All of the political establishment, with the exception of, I think, of Elizabeth Warren, everybody lined up on the side of the congressman. He's a, he's a quintessential example of a Nancy Pelosi Democrat. And he failed miserably. I mean, he 13% of the vote had been counted when he gave his concession speech, which, by the way, was a nice concession speech. Yeah, it was clear. Ayanna I, Presley is her Presley's name. Yeah. Yeah. And so what's amazing is that she basically, her trumpeted call, delivered person to person, so not over the airwaves, was, we must seize this opportunity to take our country back. Mm-hmm. And she's absolutely right. Uh, Ocasio in New York. Yeah, same, Ocasio-Cortez same uh, in New York. Gillum in Florida. Well, in Gillum in Florida, I'm going to comment on him because it probably doesn't relate to anything really critical, but it's just too good a line not to quote. Gillum, you know, as people know, he's the mayor of Tallahassee. He ran on a, I think, around an eighth of the budget that his. It was a tiny fraction, tiny fraction of what the Graham, yeah. Graham spent it. You know, Graham is a historic name in Florida. Kathy's father, I believe, was governor of Florida. She'd been part of the Democratic establishment in Florida forever. And what Gillum said was, if we keep trying to elect people that are basically Republican light, we're going to keep getting more Republicans. And so he staked out a position and he said, you know, we absolutely have to be willing to look at everything that's wrong in our society, starting with the fact that we got a president we probably ought to impeach. And anybody who at this stage of the game isn't talking impeachment I'm doubtful that they are paying attention. Uh, there's more than enough evidence in the public record at this point. And as you notice, the entire Democratic establishment refuses to discuss it. Well, Andrew Gillum did. Presley did. Ocasio did. Mm-hmm. So 
what's happening is there's a, a younger group of people, and I think people who in the past have considered themselves disenfranchised, who, when you activate them, they come out and vote, mm -hmm. and it turns the tide. And I think that's really critical because the people who have the most to lose are the young people and the people of color. So in Gillum's case, for example, he generated a 70% increase in voter turnout in the prior election. That's massive. That's And with no money. Now, he got attacked the very next day by the Republican opponent, but who called him a monkey and... Yeah. This whole dog whistle thing about yep. him being black. And, yep. and actually, he's done a couple other things since then that are just as bad. And Gillum's been interviewed now on the national press. And they keep asking him, well, what do you think of that? What do you think? And he says, you know, I, they're trying to weaponize race. Yeah. I don't want to go there. I was actually just listening to something on that today. And the way that he took that and re-articulated what the entire conversation really ought to be about was yeah. brilliant. And that's why yeah. I'm making these comments. These comments are not made because, I'm not, for those of you who have been listening for any length of time, I've been an independent for almost 30 years now. So I'm not registered as a Democrat, and this is not a Democratic show. What it is is it's a show about business and society. And as I start out by saying, they're intertwined. Well, what Gillum correctly identified, and this is the quote I think is so fabulous, they said, well, is he weaponizing race? He says, yeah, but I want to talk about the issues. He says, you know, if you wrestle with the pig, you both get dirty. The difference is the pig likes it. And I think there's, a, there's an element in our political discourse, which is like the pig he's talking about, that likes to get dirty. It starts with the president. The new book that came out, it's coming out this week uh, from Woodward's, Woodward's book, mm -hmm. Fear. You know, I mean, the fact that the president would get on the phone with him, be told by Woodward that Woodward was taping the call, and then proceed to lie about the fact he didn't give Woodward the interview to, gee, no one told me you wanted to talk to me. I mean, I read that Woodward wanted to talk to him, but it was the front page of the New York Times. I mean, and so Woodward, of course, says, well, we did ask six people. And you know Woodward has the names of all six. He names Kellyanne, but he names several other people. He named Lindsey Graham. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the President of the United States lies with such alacrity, I mean, I don't, he, I don't think he cares. It's, it's not like he's doing it because he just does it. Right? I don't think he can help it, actually. Honestly, he may, not be, I, he may I, be like I an alcoholic and he's had so his first drink. So compulsive about it. That yeah, it well, his ego, you know, his ego is yeah. completely out of control. So there's an opinion piece today in the New York Times uh, where a Republican, a senior Republican, is quoting members of the Republican Trump cabinet saying that they've seriously been talking about the 25th Amendment on the cabinet as a way to try and get this tragedy behind them. Now, why am I talking about this? Obviously, I'm very concerned as, as a patriot, if you will, as someone who cares about the country. But I'm also very concerned about the economy. And what I want people to realize is, for every good news story you're going to hear, which someone will want you to believe so they can continue to push the market up, the overwhelming bad news is, since 1970, the middle class has lost purchasing power. The overwhelming bad news is it hasn't gotten better since 2016. Can you discuss some of the factors that have... Dampened? Eroded. Yeah, eroded. Yeah. That have made it so that we have less purchasing power. Purchasing power is a function of disposable income. So disposable income means how much do you have left over when you get through paying your normal bills. Right? And one of the things that drives purchasing power is productivity. So if you increase productivity in society and the rules are not rigged in favor of the wealthy you're able then to actually start getting more purchasing power. But if your wages stay the same in terms of inflation, and all the gains, which were since 1972 have been going towards the top 1% or 2%, if they end up with all the goodies, then your purchasing power didn't increase because your income kept up with inflation but didn't exceed it. So even as productivity gains occurred, massive productivity gains occurred in this economy, right? I mean, look at Apple, the last, since the 70s, look, the entire Silicon Valley is less than 25 years old, right? Mm -hmm. So you're talking about Silicon Valley, the entire revolution. You're talking about biotechnology. You're talking about the revolution in retail. Uh, all these things are happening, and the money's not getting to the people because the, the benefits of all of that have gone to the top 2% mm -hmm. over and over again because that's who's been paying the bills for politicians. In fact... In some of the jurisdictions that had the biggest Trump victories, they've had the worst problems in mm -hmm. terms of unemployment and in terms of not being able to raise livable wages. So what's important here is don't get lost in all the games. Don't get lost in the controversy of the moment. I don't think any sane or rational person today thinks of Donald Trump as a great world leader.
I think there's probably 25 to 30% of his base, which are, in effect, cult followers, uh, who would literally let him shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and think it was fine. But that represents not even a third of the U.S. electorate. And what we keep forgetting is the other two-thirds is also being adversely impacted. And so those two-thirds that have got to come out in these by-elections, they've got to come out and they've got to put some checks and balances in place. Yeah. The Constitution has been badly violated. We can't keep attacking the Justice Department, and it's his Justice Department, run by his Attorney General, with his head of the FBI, Ray. So Sessions was appointed by him, Ray's appointed by him, his cabinet's been appointed by him. So he can't keep destroying and hollowing out the entire counterintelligence ability of the Justice Department. We can't keep destroying the intelligence gathering ability of the CIA. We can't keep discouraging federal employees to think that if they don't have his favor, they won't have a career. You can't keep doing that without having economic implications. Mm -hmm. And one of those implications, some of them, are very obvious. I'll get to that in a second. Others are far more insidious. And so when I make the point that the economy and politics are intrinsically intertwined, like entangled pairs. What I'm really saying is, until we start to get the politics right, or into some semblance of normalcy, until we get them back into within reasonable guardrails, whether that politics is conservative or liberal, as long as it's in with a, with a certain bandwidth, it's a conversation we can have, and the economy can do very well. The economy cannot do well when the wheels keep coming off like this. Now, one of the places you're starting to see it is with tariffs. He mentioned that at the outset of the show. What Wall Street's been doing has been making a false assumption that Trump would just want to get some cheap victory, stop, and then move on to something else. And they really didn't believe that he was going to hang on to tariffs the way he's been hanging on to. So Wall Street now is beginning to get very concerned about the tariffs because in any war, everybody loses, and that's particularly true in tariff wars. Can you just back that up a little bit? What are you seeing in how Wall Street's reacting currently? That's giving you the signs that, that the tariff and the trade wars are starting to have a negative effect. There are any number of large funds are repositioning themselves to much more conservative allocations. And when you have a stock market that's already at multiples that are unsustainable, mm -hmm. it doesn't take much for a hiccup to happen. Mm -hmm. So I'm standing by my prediction that this quarter, the third quarter, uh, we'll see growth in the economy having dropped from 4.1% to 3.1% or less. I'm going to stick by the prediction that there will be a recession within six months. I'm going to stick by the prediction, which Paul Tudor Jones and the chairman of Goldman Sachs also happen to agree with, that this is going to be a much worse recession than people think mm -hmm. because of the complications of the international financial system. But most of all, what I want to address is how these tariffs are beginning to punish people. So even though, for example, I believe last week they started handing out $4.5 billion dollars uh, in soybean support. The farm subsidies. The farm mm -hmm. subsidies. Yep. But soybean prices have dropped almost 20% already. And what's happening is other countries, we'll get to Argentina later, but Argentina is an example, Brazil is an example, are rushing in to fill the void. So the Chinese aren't going to pay any more for their soybeans. They're going to pay the Brazilians the same they pay us. They're going to pay someone else. They're going to pay someone else. So it's hurting us. It's mm -hmm. the same thing is true with, you know, his first showcase was Harley Davidson. And how he was going to, you know, bring you know, Harley Davidson, the symbol of American manufacturing might. He goes for the tariffs. Harley says, I got to move jobs out of the Midwest because yeah. I can't sell motorcycles in Europe, which is outside the market. I think more than half of Harley Davidson's market is outside the U.S. So they're getting hurt two ways. One, they're the brand now that no one likes because the American brand has been barely, badly damaged. So that's problem number one. And problem number two, they had to move and build a factory overseas. I read an analysis that Harley-Davidson is going to spend more money building that factory, being able to sell bikes in Europe, than the entire financial benefit they got from both the tax bill and the repatriation earnings. So what he's done is he shot himself mm -hmm. repeatedly in the feet. And the tariffs are the worst possible example. He's now talking about an additional $200 billion in tariffs on Chinese. Well, first of all, he can't possibly win a trade war with the Chinese for no other reason but the Chinese are our principal banker. Right. So if the Chinese wanted to really hurt us, all they have to do is stop buying our treasury bonds and we would be up the creek without the proverbial paddle. Now, they don't want to do that because if they do that as the largest holder of our debt, they'll, it would get they'll crushed. Lose, they'll, they'll get pennies on yeah. their dollar. Yeah, but someone in, in Beijing is going, you know, why don't we just slap these guys around a little bit and teach them a lesson, I'm sure. But also the real reason is 
he's messing with supply chain economics. So if you take Walmart as an example, not necessarily my favorite company, but the largest retailer by far in America, I think something like you know a quarter of all the retail dollars in America. I think it's one of the largest employers in the, in the is, country it as is, well. It is. And so Walmart is able to pass along to consumers less expensive goods because they can buy them in China. Now, does anybody here in America want to work on a sewing machine for a dollar an hour? No, but they're happy to do it in China because to them, at their standard of living, that's a, that's a step up. What we want to do is we want to create jobs in America which are uniquely able to be held by people who live here. There's two ways to do that. One, you create jobs in the infrastructure sector. So if you're in the infrastructure sector and you want to build a bridge, you want to fix a highway, you want to build a train that works, you want to build airports, anything that you want to rebuild the water system that's badly broken all over the country, you want to get the lead out of the pipes because they're so old. Any one of those things and all of those things requires American labor. That job cannot be outsourced. That's got to be done by human beings living in America. And those are good paying jobs. Just like installing solar is a great paying job. So we don't want to revert back to the pre-industrial revolution and have our children running around in large sewing machine factories at the age of five, eight, and 14. Right. Because that was how we paid for the society. We want those kids to go to school. We want them to not only go through high school, we want them to go to college. And we want them to become computer programmers. We want them to become technicians. We want them to become people who can earn even more money than a solar installer because of their education. What we're doing currently is crippling our ability to do that. So the tariffs are beginning to be perceived by large hedge fund investors as likely to cause not only damage, but probably some irreparable damage. Let me give you one more example, and then we'll go to the next level. If, in fact, he were to try to impose tariffs on automobiles from Canada, as an example. First of all, I don't think he legally can, because NAFTA is a treaty that's been approved by the right. United States and, Senate, mm -hmm. so he can't just tear it up. He's got to get the Congress to go along with the new treaty. He's trying to rush to get something done with Mexico because the Mexican government is changing to a completely new party. Mm -hmm. uh, Amador may or may not be willing to play footsie with him the way he's going. Although I think the Mexicans actually did better than we did in the new negotiation because they're going to get a minimum wage of $16 an hour, which they're happy about. But the Canadians are going to require a rational deal. Now, if he doesn't do a rational deal, he can't just tear up NAFTA. No, and, and the only authority that he's got is to renegotiate the three-part agreement. So if Canada doesn't come to the board, then he has no deal with Mexico. No, because Mexican, yeah. the Mexicans, first of all, wouldn't go along with it. But again, he can't supersede NAFTA. This is not one of those things where you can give an, I think he thinks he can give an executive order or something. No, he can't. He can't. It's a treaty obligation. Yeah. So he's got to get, I believe, 60% of the Senate has to endorse any new treaty, including walking away from NAFTA. And I just don't see that happening. Now, even though I think there are Democrats who would like to renegotiate NAFTA, I think there are Canadians who would like to renegotiate NAFTA. There's clearly Mexicans who would like to renegotiate NAFTA. But renegotiating NAFTA is not saying, you're the bully, you beat us up, we'll do whatever you said, which is what he would like. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's part of his narcissism, is that he would like to be the bully that can beat people up. So tariffs are clearly one of those places where we're hurting ourselves badly. Would you also agree, though, that tariffs, essentially, by putting them in place, they don't give you the position of leverage that Trump believes he's in? Yeah, I have a belief that in every war, no one wins, and that includes trade wars. So Trump clearly does not understand the nature of tariffs. He doesn't get that, for example, when you put a tariff on steel or aluminum, as he's done, that's a tax that U.S. people pay. I started the show by talking about the fact that the disposable income of Americans has gone sideways since the 70s. Well, the last thing you want to do is take more money out of their wallets because you now make them pay a tax that's going to be built into the price of steel and aluminum. It's crazy because it's taking money away when we need disposable income to keep our consumer economy growing. Another example would be if you look at the way that tariffs create disequilibriums, so the least efficient producer becomes enshrined even though they're the least efficient producer yeah. for political reasons. That's putting the market economy on its head. The last thing you want is the least efficient producer making it. You want the most efficient producer. Another example, in the way we look at tariffs, and clearly Trump does not understand what tariffs are. He thought China paid the tariffs or something. I don't know, but it's just completely crazy, which is what... 
basically the Woodward book says. Is they handle him like he's a fifth grader. I mean, he, he right. doesn't have any understanding of economics, so how would he, could he understand that he was going to, quote, win in a tariff war? Because he's the biggest bully on the playground, he figures, well, then I'm must going to be win because I'm the biggest economy. Doesn't he doesn't have way. understanding of economics. He doesn't have understanding no. of foreign diplomacy. He doesn't understand anything. He's a fifth grader. Yeah. And, 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 and it's, frankly, I think every Republican that's supporting him right now is guilty of treason. I think that what they're doing is they're abetting a hostile foreign power, Russia, in supporting Trump so that there is no cross-check, as our Constitution would expect, of the Congress over the presidency. That's crazy. But let's go to the economics again. And by the way, when I say that's crazy, that means it's going to have an economic impact that will be mm -hmm. negative. Mm -hmm. right? you can just, every time I say that's crazy, it's like, that's bad for the economy. Mm -hmm. And that's bad for individuals listening to this program. Give you another example. What he's doing with the immigrant community. So he started out with this stupid birtherism thing and, you know, calling Obama uh, born in Kenya. And he wrote up on that. Then when he declared his run for the president, the first thing he picked on was the people, the, the Hispanics, yeah, mm -hmm. the rapists and murderers, blah, blah, blah. And then he picks on MS-13, which actually is an American-based organization, which yeah. infiltrated Latin America. We, we deported it from Los Angeles. Yes, yeah. so. <laughs> and, and is, I don't think he even knows that, by the way. Um, and then what he's doing now, for example, is they just now, I think, 41% drop in H-1 visas. Yeah. For those of you listening who don't know what an H-1 visa is, an H-1 visa is what you get if somebody in Silicon Valley thinks they really need to borrow your brains. In other words, you bring people into the country who have particular skills, usually very sophisticated skills, often computer skills, and you bring them in on a visa so that you can basically use their brain power to build an American company. By reducing H-1 visas by 41%, what he's doing is creating a brain drain. By the way, most of those are now going to Canada. The winners in this trade war, if he continues, are going to be Canada and Europe after a bloody mess occurred. It's going to be bloody, but mm -hmm. they're going to be the winners that will walk away. And the reason is, in the end, culture will triumph over anything. You know, Warren Bennis, who's now deceased, but was a fellow of the Academy the day he died for many, many years, uh, had this great quote, which is that culture trumps strategy for breakfast. And what he meant by that was, if you have the right culture, you will get to the right strategy. But if you have the right strategy and the wrong culture, you're never going to get there. So we're now talking about this on a macro level. Mm -hmm. So the culture has got a problem of massive proportions, and that's going to screw up any strategy, mm -hmm. even if it was a good one, which in this case it isn't. One last example. Again, every time you do one of these things where you hound the immigrant community, where you frighten them, what you're going to cause them to do is to spend less. You're going to cause them to save up their money so that if they have to flee, they can. Mm -hmm. Creating fear, which is the name of the Woodward book, never, ever, ever helps a consumer economy because people in fear don't spend. And again, we're over 73% economy that requires spending. So this thing going on in Texas now. So as many of you know, this is the show, I'm an immigrant. I was not born in this country. I came here many years ago. I made a huge contribution to the country. I paid a godzillion dollars worth of taxes and created many thousands of jobs, tens of thousands of jobs. And I'm delighted to be able to be here and to create things that I think can help the country and humanity. Well, my passport's in jeopardy. He's now taking people like me, lawful immigrants with lawful passports, and pulling them along the Texas border. And or he's giving them no right to renew them when they renew. Now he's not going to pick on me probably because I'm white. You're a Canadian. I'm Canadian. You're not a Mexican. <laughs> Although immigrant. right now being a Canadian may be worse than being a Mexican. Yeah, true. <laughs> in his twisted mind. Trudeau is not one of his favorite people. <laughs> I don't think any Canadians at this point. But my point is because Trudeau won't buckle, and, and every bully likes it when the other guy buckles. My point is, I will confess, I'm starting to think like immigrants think, which is, hmm, am I safe here anymore? And it doesn't encourage me to spend more. And we'll come to the end of the show. We'll talk about things people can do in the face of this much chaos. And I want to put out one quick plug here before I go further. I am ultimately an optimist. Tom Friedman was on television the other night, and he was, he was told uh, that the reason he was an optimist is because he was so short. And Friedman pushed back and said, wait a minute, I'm not that short. And <laughs> the, the gentleman he was talking to said, yeah, you are. You're so short that you can only see the glass half full. <laughs> <laughs> so I wish I believe in the glass more than half full. Uh, we publish the Optimist Daily. It's a free service. Please take it. Tell everybody you know to take it for free. Uh, become a subscriber so that you can start your day like I did, reading five happy stories, five stories that are positive, that then gives me the ability to not go crazy and cynical for the rest of the day. Mm -hmm.
And I urge you, please write info at worldbusiness.org and sign up for Optimus Daily. Optimus Daily. So it's, you stay in balance. And one day, this radio show will be able to go back to more positive themes when there are positive themes to report. I'd love to be able to say it's a great harbinger of economic activity that now two companies have, have crossed the $1 trillion value mark. Obviously, Apple first, and then yesterday, Amazon. So, great. They're, they're trillion-dollar companies. It says a lot about American ingenuity. It says a lot about two people, Bezos. It certainly says a lot about uh, how good a job in the post-Steve Jobs era Apple has done at managing itself. On the other hand, it doesn't say much for anybody else. Mm -hmm. You know, Bernie Sanders is pushing hard on Jeff Bezos. Why don't you take some of your wealth and raise all of your employees to a minimum wage? Yeah. 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 Which, yeah. Is a, which is a reasonable question. Mm -hmm. And I think that as much as Jeff... Bezos and I think the world of Jeff Bezos, as long as he doesn't like hearing that, I think Bernie's got the better of that argument. I mean, to Jeff Bezos, being the richest man in the world, it wouldn't take much mm -hmm. for him to take everybody who works for Amazon and get them up to a livable wage. Yeah. wouldn't take much at all. No. And the world would love him for it because they'd like to see that kind of leadership in business. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Tom Friedman a little bit ago. Yeah. I don't know if you saw his most recent column in the Times talking about crazy rich Asians. Yeah. Um, and one of the points that he makes is that that movie, Crazy Rich Asians, what it really reminds you of is how crazy and rich the Asian economies really have become recently. Yeah. And they got that way, not by inflaming ethnic tensions or getting involved with meaningless wars, but really by investing in the human capital, putting their money in education in for both men and women, and actually focusing on things which are going to create that sustainable kind of wealth. Well, I talked a minute ago about we want to have our kids go to high school and, and college. Mm -hmm. And if you look at international testing standards, when it comes to reading, math, and science, STEM courses, we're somewhere between 25th and 30th in the world behind virtually every other industrial country I and a bunch that. of countries that aren't. Mm -hmm. And so what China did, which was brilliant, and I think those people who are betting against China right now I don't like the political system, and I think eventually the political system will cause it to have serious hiccups. But as long as our political system is worse, in effect, meaning if, if the way we goof up in our country is basically supporting China in all the ways that are crazy. Example, uh, the Chinese renminbi, their currency, is going to become more and more a global currency. Uh, the U.S. dollar is, after this next recession, mark my words, going to be no longer the sole standard of international wealth. So we're not going to be the reserve currency anymore. We're, we're going to be one of four or five. It's going to be the euro, the, the renminbi. You will always have some value in the Swiss franc for the mm -hmm. foreseeable future. And then you will see a collection of other currencies that, as a basket, can have some effect. But in terms of the big ones, it'll be China, U.S., and Europe will be the three major currencies. So does the openness of the Chinese economy change the overall power of the Chinese renminbi? Well, it's not open, it's closed. The Chinese government is very close. No, I think what happens is that because it's a command and control economy, as distinguished from a capital markets economy, China can create responses in the marketplace relatively quickly. So they've now already started switching back over to infrastructure from consumer. So they, they ran a 15, 18-year, almost 20-year run on using consumer purchases, both domestically and foreign sales, to bump 500 million people out of poverty. That's no minor task. And to create a middle class in China that today's probably got 250, 350 million people in it. Their middle class is as big as our entire country, mm -hmm. up from nothing. Now, the downside with the communist method is it's impossible to keep that system going without corruption. Okay, So they know that. And they execute the odd guy here and there occasionally just to show that they're serious, but they're really, at the end of the day, they can't because they want to keep so much power in the hands of less than 2% of the population, which in their case is Communist Party members, that they really have a problem. So they got to allow a certain amount of corruption in the system so that everybody will stay in line with the Communist Party because that's the ultimate goal of the chairman of the Communist Party, Xi, is his goal is not to perpetuate China for the millennia. His goal is to perpetuate the Chinese Communist Party running China for millennia. And that's a very different goal. So the downside to the Chinese economy is if we just did our job right, if we did our job well, China would not be able to dominate the global scene the way it is. But because we pulled back, for example, from humanitarian relief, China's lending money all over the place. And there are some countries that believe China's lending them too much money 
elites in those countries are stealing the money, as a result, Malaysia being the most recent example, mm -hmm. and then they've been leaving them saddled with huge Chinese debts. Well, I don't think the Chinese always lend money just to trap you in a debt cycle. I think they actually do it because they want to control your port. They want to lend you the money for your railroad, and they want you to buy Chinese trains for that railroad. So they're doing what we used to do after World War II until we forgot how to do it, which is to build infrastructure and utilize that as a way to generate profits to American companies. Is so, this the Belt and Road Yeah, the Belt and Road Initiative, the, the New Silk Road. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so to, to your question, I think that uh, we're looking at a communist organization that has its act together so well relative to how well we don't have our act together that it's creating, by leaps and bounds, more influence on the global economy and the global society than one would ever have predicted even, say, 10 years ago. And I think that that will continue to happen until we right the ship. Now, I said a minute ago that we're going to be one of many reserve currencies. We're not going to be the only reserve currency. The implications of that are stunning. So just to let folks know, if we were not the reserve currency any longer, we would not be able to live beyond our means as we do right now. So although the tax reduction that was passed for the benefit of the wealthiest people in this country was supposedly only going to cost us $1.5 it's clear to me, as I said at the time, it's well over $2 trillion growing. So that means within not more than two years and maybe sooner, the United States is going to be in a position where its debt is 200% of its GDP. Mm -hmm. And I put that in context. At the end of World War II, when we'd been fighting Hitler for four and a half years in Japan, at that time, and we paid for it with war bonds and every imaginable thing you can imagine, we our total debt to GDP never got above 170%. So we're now above the World War II debt level. Are we right now with our debt level at 200%? No, it's approaching 200 Approaching, okay. Yeah, it's at 190 I would guess. Right that, now, and and it's partly linked to the tax reform. It's clearly tax linked to the tax, but it's also because as the reserve currency, you can spend as much as you want because you print as much money as you want and everybody takes it. When you're no longer the reserve currency, Argentina is an example of this, where you have when people have to buy stuff from you, you have to then get your budget in balance. So we're way out of balance. And we're going to continue in that direction. I don't know if we're going to have a chance to talk about Afghanistan and Iraq later, but you know, we continue to fund a war in the Middle East to the extent that our national treasure, not only our blood, meaning young people dying, but our national treasure is being soaked up in the Middle East and we can't keep our bridges repaired. So again, back to infrastructure spending. I mean, if we were to start investing in infrastructure and start working on spending on education, if we started spending reasonable amounts on healthcare, yeah. all the things that you have to do to build a strong society, which we did in 1800s, Mm-hmm. which we did in, in the first half of the 1900s, and which we stopped doing around 1960. Certainly 1970, we stopped. If we would do those things, you would see the ratio of debt to GDP drop, mm -hmm. as it did after World War II. It dropped so fast after World War II, people forget how much debt we had. Yeah, those are the real foundations of sustainable That's the real sustainable. That's really where that's, growth comes from. That's where Everything comes from. else is like a charade. Yeah. And what happens is people get caught up looking at the market, saying, oh, the stock market's up. Well, first of all, not that many people own stocks, just to put it in perspective. Mm -hmm. okay. A lot of people have 401ks, but not many people own stocks. And, and even if they do, it's a small part small. of their overall wealth. It, it, look, um, I, I read a study what, the other day that I think half of all, no, 45%, 40 percent, 40% of all the single women in America had less than 250 in savings. $250? Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's, if that's true, but let me just say, if it, if it even close to true, that's insane. Mm -hmm. if, if the average person who's 65, for example, has 25000 in savings, they're up the creek. Okay? People my age are not retiring anymore. They can't afford to. And what I see happening over and over again is people my age have to then be willing to take any job they can get just to, just to add to their Social Security. So they go flip hamburgers for 15 bucks an hour. You, you go look at your local fast if, food joint. If joint. they're lucky, they get $15 if, an hour. If you're lucky, you get <laughs> they better. They better... Yeah. Vote for the $15 an hour living <laughs> wage. Because <laughs> most of you get hired at 11 that's true. Um, or less. I think it's ten fifty starting right now at the hamburger joint here in Santa Barbara. Yeah, and but that's in California. In, uh, yeah. in Kansas, it's a little different. I'm sure it's less. The, yeah. yeah. So, so tariffs hurting us badly. The way we're treating the immigrant community here, terribly hurting the economy. Um, the amount of social discord that's being sown intentionally for political gain 
terrible for the economy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I mentioned to you this story that came out yesterday about Bank of America freezing certain people's bank accounts. Uh, yeah. It's mostly in Florida, but people, if they can't update their immigration status, the bank is freezing their accounts and they have no access to their money. And the shockwaves that go from that, so that story gets reported, you know, it's in Florida, it goes across the country, all of those immigrant communities are going to pull their money out of the bank and they're not going to spend it. Yeah. And it, you and I have a lot of friends in the immigrant community. Yeah. I was just stopped on the way back to the office after lunch by one of them who was explaining her latest, but she's legal. She's not an illegal alien. She's legally here from Mexico. And she was explaining to me this problem she had and how did she deal with it. And, and you know, what moved me was most people in the immigrant community don't have anybody to ask. That's mm -hmm. problem number one. But problem number two is if I were in her shoes, I'd be pulling back. I'd be mm -hmm. saying, you know what, I better save my money because I don't know what's coming next. And that is when you have a real problem. Mm -hmm. So right now, if you look at the numbers in the last three months, for example, housing starts are down. Why are they down? Well, one of the reasons they're down lately is because the cost of lumber from Canada got hit with a tariff. So that's hurting the housing industry. The housing industry is one of our most basic industries. Mm -hmm. When you're not building new houses, you're not funneling money into the economy. Second reason it's happening. Family formations. People are coming out of school too poor yeah, to go buy have, that first they have, house. They're saddled with student loan debt. Student debt. Which is, they can't get out of. Even, nope. even under Even bankruptcy doesn't doesn't free you of that. That's right. Yeah, it's you get student your first loans job and it goes, it goes either to your rent, which is also pretty high, yeah. or to paying down your student loans. I mean, Benjamin, you can uh, yeah. weigh in on this. Right, yeah, definitely. I actually, at my apartment, I got the mail last week and... One of the previous occupants had a letter from the Department of Education saying, we're going to repossess whatever property you have if you don't pay off the $60,000 in student loans. Yeah. I guess um, the way I would, the bookend for this part of the conversation, if you take Thomas Friedman, who I mentioned earlier, and you look at that thing he just put out, that column called uh, Code Red, where he said, we're past any point of safety as a nation. Code red is a term that means we're on you know, DEFCON 1. We're past the point of any reasonable safety. And uh, he gave several examples why that was so and why he published the, the piece out of his normal publication rotation. Um, and so you say, okay, so what Friedman's saying is what I've been saying in this radio show is like when you, when you do this much wrong in the political sector, you come back and have these really bad economic consequences. So... Student loans is just another bad economic consequence from a political decision that was made to try and put the screws down on students instead of saying, you know what, we ought to forgive student loan debt. Student loans are individual banks who lent the money with a complete federal guarantee. Okay? And and pretty high rates of interest, I might add. Not they're not yeah, cheap. They're not they're not three percent interest. It's no. not like having a four percent. It's not like having a mortgage. And as you pointed out, you can't expunge it in bankruptcy just like you can't expunge taxes in bankruptcy. So how did that rule get written that a private company, Bank of America, could lend money to a student who we want to see go through school, theoretically, and they get the protection of 100% federal guarantee and they get the right to know the debt's not extinguishable even in bankruptcy. It, to me, it's insane. It's just crazy. So if you take these bookends, code red from Thomas Friedman's point of view, the, the tragedy of what's happening to students, to immigrants, what's tearing the fabric of our society apart, and you put it all together in a big mosaic, and you start picking out, oh, I see, so when you have that illness, it looks like tariffs over here. It looks like decreased home construction over there. It looks like automobile sales dropping over here. It looks like lead in the water over there. In other words, each of these problems has a common root, and that is we've got to get our act together. Mm -hmm. It's like we're not entitled to, no one gets born in this country anymore with a free ride. It is absolutely true that people today can expect that their children will have it less well than they have it. That's the first generation of America where that's been true. And that's what we should be focusing on. Mm -hmm. How can we possibly tolerate that? Let alone the danger. You know, when you have the, the Secretary of Defense, General Mattis, saying on in front of three witnesses, apparently, that his job is to prevent the president from starting World War III. And he's not kidding. It's not a joke. That's code red. And when you see the, the constant stream of lies and the attacks and the, you know, this guy that threatened to kill 
people in Baltimore because they were fake news, quoting the president. You know, this, yeah. and, and, and now you've got the president calling for impeachment. Remember, he's saying it. The Democrats are. He's the one talking about impeachment because he thinks it'll rile the space up. Mm-hmm. And you got the president talking about violence now. Mm-hmm. If they, if the Democrats win, you will see violence. If the Democrats win, you'll see the stock market will drop. Well, the stock market is going to drop in any event because the party's over. But, right. But you know, you were saying that he might be telegraphing. Yes, that there's I think a drop he is. In the market. And he wants to take credit for the drop as if it's going to be because he's threatened. And the fact is, the drop's coming for the reasons I've been giving on the show for the last five months or longer, actually. <laughs> So that's, I guess that's the overall politics, business, and society layer. Um, I think we've, we've talked about tax restructuring. Oh, by the way, I think what he's doing to keep gas prices high is crazy. I mean, to pick on Iran at the same time when Nigeria has been going bonkers for years now. So yeah, I don't know if you saw the notice ExxonMobil issued yesterday. I, I did not. What okay, was that? Well, they basically, there's a threat to the 550,000 barrels a day they pump in Nigeria. And um, that's not, that problem's been festering for years, getting worse because the Nigerian government is very corrupt, or historically has been corrupt. Well, and they have, they've got their own terrorism issues. That's Boko Haram is all over Nigeria. Isn't that where the Well, the, 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 real issue, the issues with, with the revolt they've got going in the Delta, where, okay. the, where, where the oil is located. And um, the people in the Delta, whose land is being filled with oil residues, and who basically are surviving by illegally tapping okay. pipelines, and getting themselves blown up periodically. By those fires happen and explosions. But, but my point is that Trump wants the price of gas to go up. Why? The two principal beneficiaries of gas prices going up are Russia and Saudi Arabia. Those are his two allies. So he likes the fact that we're at $71 and change today, a barrel of oil, when everybody in America can produce it profitably for $45. So what he's really doing is giving renewed life to the economy of Russia and a boost to Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. At the expense of the American consumer. At the expense of the American consumer who's putting more money in their gas tank. Mm-hmm. Another example of how he's eroding consumer spending. And if you look at consumer debt, for example, it's up again this month. Mm-hmm. So on less real money coming in, they're spending more. That will translate into the inability to service their debt. And when you throw on top of that the weaknesses in the international monetary system, it's like, oh my goodness, we're, we're, it's like this is... This is like somebody throwing a dozen eggs up in the air at once and believing that they can catch them all before they crack and land. They can't. Do you want to talk a little bit more again about what the weaknesses in the, in the global monetary system is? Yeah, I mean, there's several weaknesses. What people should know is that we used to operate off of what are called fiat currencies. Fiat currencies, the word fiat means I believe. So they're currencies that have their value because the government that issues them says so. If you, you believe the government. They you believe the to, government. You have to trust it. the government. You've got to trust the issuer. Right. Okay. So if you think the government is badly mismanaging itself, with the exception of the United States, because they're the reserve currency, mm-hmm. so these rules do not apply yet to us. When they do, we'll have oil. But if you're Argentina, for example, we were talking about Argentina earlier. Okay. So the Nestors, when they were running Argentina, first the husband, then when he died, the, the wife, they, they ran into the ground. And a lot of corruption, and they just, they, they just really ruined a good economy. Mm-hmm. So Argentina's in trouble now. Financially in trouble. The Argentina peso has dropped by almost 50% to the U.S. dollar. Yeah, I think it's like 40, 40 pesos to the dollar. It's even worse now. It's, it, it's crossed okay. over 40. And, and the reason why that's so important, because what the Argentinians are doing, at least, is saying, okay, we got a problem. So, you know, if, if, you, if you want to quit being an alcoholic, the first thing you got to do is admit you got the problem. You know? The second thing is to stay out of the bar. But, but if you can't admit you have a problem and that's, you refuse to stop going to the bar, one, right? or as they say in the program, you know, you don't... Uh, you don't hit bottom until you stop digging. So we're still digging in the U.S. Well, what Argentina did, which is very smart, is they stopped digging. And they said, okay, we got a problem. Let's go to the IMF, where they are sitting today in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., saying, can we get a, a quicker extension of the $50 billion you've already said you're going to give us so we can bridge between here and how we're going to balance our economy? They've adopted a four-peso export tax on goods and services and a three-peso tax on everything other export. And what they're saying is, we will get that money in, on exports, which is really smart. Notice it's not on imports. Trump is putting it on imports. Mm-hmm. When you put the tax on the export, it actually is paid by the person who's buying the goods. When you put the tax on the import, which is what Trump's doing, it's paid by the person in the country where the tariff was created. So we're getting it from our president. Right. The Argentinians are smart enough not to do that themselves. Yeah. Our taxes dropped, but now our, our out-of-pocket... Well, our taxes didn't out. drop. Our taxes dropped dramatically for the top 2%. Right. They did not drop for the middle class no. significantly. 
So the bottom line is Argentina has said, okay, we've got to balance our economy because they're not a reserve currency. We are, so we don't have to balance our economy mm -hmm. yet. We will come, and when we do, there'll be all hell to pay. But the Argentina say, okay, we get that if we're going to borrow $50 billion, we have to have some way to pay it back. The way we'll pay it back is with an export tax, and that's how we'll balance our economy. Mm -hmm. That makes all the sense in the world. Now, they've gotten hurt terribly. If the IMF extends that loan, which I think they will, I mean, it's already been extended if they accelerate the, the, mm -hmm. the payout. Mm -hmm. If the Argentinians go forward, which they apparently are going to with the export tax, mm -hmm. If Argentina is able to take advantage of our stupidity, because their principal, I think the principal export is beef still, and now we'll have less U.S. competition on the international beef market, because we have a glut of beef, because our international markets aren't buying anymore, it seems to me that Argentina has taken the steps to begin to right its problems. The country of Brazil has not done that. The country of Brazil is going to benefit from a huge amount of increase in soybean exports, and that might paper over their continuing political crisis. But Brazil is another example of where you can't isolate the economy from the politics. The politics is so corrupt in Brazil that it's, and, and I don't think that's Lula. I think that's the people who follow Lula. Timor, who's the current president, is, should be indicted. I mean, he got caught with his hand on the cookie jar already. But because Brazil is not addressing its fundamental weaknesses, mm -hmm. you can have something as dramatic as the big fire of its national museum, its treasure, for, it's been there since the 1800s. But that's just a flash of, in the pan. What's really going on is that they're hollowing out the core of Brazilian enterprise. Because the government is so corrupt, the politics is so corrupt, Brazil is not able to utilize something like the increase in soybean sales, which they're going to benefit. They're not going to be able to use it to right their ship because they haven't got good management at the tiller. So right. they're like the U.S. in that regard. So they'll get a benefit. They'll sell so a whole lot more soybeans. They're but floating it around without anyone at the, at the tiller. Yeah, they're rudderless. They're, they're rudderless. Or the tiller, yeah. yeah. So that's an example of Argentina. You can take other countries where there's been dramatic drops in purchasing power. So take uh, Venezuela, uh, Venezuela is a perfect example, because the Venezuelan government, which is so rotten, it's totally destroyed the economy, even though they're an oil-based economy. It's, uh, the people are fleeing the country, literally starving to death. Yeah. Uh, Maduro is... They're on the Maduro diet, they call it. Yeah, the Maduro diet, uh, which means they can't afford to eat. And... That's a, to me, that's the best example in the world today of what really bad politics does to an economy. Yeah. Okay, that's that, that's they have, it. They have, quite, they have great natural resources. Great natural there's, resources. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with the country except for the politics. That's right. And then I'll give you another example of where the politics is starting to get right, which is not far away in Colombia. So Colombia racked with you know, 25, 30 years of war, civil war. Once it finally got its act together, elected a president who was willing to end that war. Mm -hmm. Um, Colombia is starting to come back. I'll mm -hmm. uh, give you another example in between those two. If you look at the, well, take, if you take Turkey, where I think the lira, the Turkish lira has probably dropped 70% against the U.S. dollar. Unbelievably bad politics. Erdogan, who wants to be a dictator for life, has been willing to sacrifice mm -hmm. uh, his country to his ambition and to his desire to turn it from a secular democracy into a religious state. Mm -hmm. And he believes that by doing that, he will enshrine his own power for another decade or two. It's not working. Turkey's getting crushed by it. He'll end up being, either he'll have a revolt on his hands, or if he's, a, which he is so strong-armed, he'll have to assassinate enough people to keep him dead until he's dead. But completely going to collapse. It's going to, it's, it's, Turkey's finished. Mm -hmm. So do we want to be Turkey? Do we want to be Venezuela? Or do we want to be like Argentina? Take our medicine, learn our lesson and get on and start repairing the damage. And I would say, everybody listening to this, it's our vested interest to take our medicine and start repairing the damage. And in this case, take our medicine means we probably have to unwind the last tax bill. Mm -hmm. We've got to put we got to put more taxes on the table so that we can pay for the things we need to build our society. We've got to start dealing with infrastructure. You know, we I mentioned Afghanistan earlier. I just want to quote General Nicholson, who is the uh, is he three or four star general, I think. Yeah. He's stepping down. He's stepping down from the. He just stepped down from the command. He's sixty-one year old guy. He's done three tours over there, and he, in his farewell address to his troops in Kabul, he said, "We've got to have peace. It's time to end this war. It's time to end this war mm -hmm. because we keep pouring more blood and more treasure, and we have no policy in which we are pursuing. Mm -hmm. We're just there because we're there." He said, mm -hmm. and it's time to rethink that. Well. I don't care how big a bully you are. I don't care how strong you think you are. You can't indefinitely just engage in pugilism mm -hmm. 
and not count the cost. So we have to start looking at you know, what is our role in the world? We've diminished it greatly. What should we appropriately do? I think when this is over, uh, Trump's gone. If the country still is around in the current form, it, it will be time for us to say, okay, we lost our position as the number one country in the world. Okay, we'll be one of five or six that matter. Right, and I think I think the the phrase you were you were using earlier is that we have to find a new political maturity. That's right. That was something that really struck me the last time we talked about this situation. Yeah, we need a new political maturity. We need to be able to say, what do we want to do that will actually improve the lives of our people, that will be consistent with our values, who we are, and what we are as a nation. We have this nativist thing happening about a. 30% of the electorate is extraordinarily right-wing to a scary point, and they probably control probably 85% of the guns. So I'm very yeah. concerned about violence. Absolutely. I'm very concerned about yeah. violence. Yeah. And we need to get past this point because it's not serving anyone's interest that I care about. But I don't know that it's really 30% of the populace that's really... Of the electorate. Of the electorate. Yes, that's the difference. And this is why it's so important for people to really vote. That's right. Because that's right. so many people don't vote at all. Well, and that's why I talk about Gillum, because to increase a turnout by 70% right. is what people have to do who have values. And I'm unabashedly progressive. I don't like the label liberal or conservative, but I like the idea of progressive, meaning mm -hmm. I'm for society progressing. Yeah. I'm for human values. You're a forward thinker. I'm forward thinking. Mm -hmm. I want everybody to have a better life. I don't want to just get rich without mm -hmm. everybody else coming up. I want all boats to rise with the tide. You mentioned before the Optimist Daily, and you were talking about feel-good stories, and it's not really just feel-good stories, although it, it does make you feel better about the world. The goal with the Optimist Daily, I think, is to find and send out to all of the subscribers every day solutions journalism, you know, yeah. reporting on solutions, whether they're for the environment or for how to live longer, you know, everything from the personal to the planetary. It's about reporting on the people and the things that are happening around the, around the globe that are solutions to some of these intractable problems. Yeah, and I'm going to end on a positive note. Okay. Before I do that, I'm going to give some advice. Because these are tumultuous times, because there's so many stressors on the economy, there's so many stressors in the political system, I want everybody to get really conservative with their money mm -hmm. and with what they're, how they're planning their lives. If you don't desperately need a new car, don't buy one. If, if it's too big a stretch to buy a home, don't buy one, even a used one. If you have credit card debt, for God's sakes, pay it down. If you can put anything in the savings, start putting it in the savings. Get ready. The tempest is coming, and you don't want to be unprepared. You know, as we look at the ravages of climate change and what the additional stressors it's putting on our society, it's clear to me that you wouldn't sit there in the Gulf of Mexico today staring at a hurricane coming at you and not go get some bottled water and some batteries and otherwise board up your windows. In other words, we take precautions. And we need to do that as individual consumers. We have to start taking more precautions. We have to be more conservative with our money. Now, all that's going to cause the economy to turn down because we're going to be spending less. But that's okay. Uh, let somebody else spend all their money. And, you know, this is like the old story of the ants and the grasshopper. And the gra yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so the grasshopper's been fiddling, and the ants are working and I would like our listeners to be ants, not grasshoppers. I want them to be able to come through this and come out the other side because there's no telling for sure where it's going to come out. Not a, not a chance it's going to be a happy place in the short term. But in the long term, let's see if we can't repair the damage. And here's the happy thought. You know, I was saying that I've never seen a problem that can't be solved with today's technology and resources. That would include political problems. The Republicans, for example... If they do get a blue wave in, in, in November and they decide that Trump's more liability than, than an asset, they'll turn on him and that'll be the end of Trump. And at that point, we'll say, okay, how do we want to rebuild our politics? And yeah. frankly, I hope there's going to be four parties. I would love to see what we used to call Republicans are basically the party of Trump now. So, And that's not going to change. Mm -hmm. So you got 30% of the electorate, the party of Trump. You're going to have about 20% of the electorate at least, which is going to be what Republicans used to be. So let's call them... The country club Republican, right? Wait, I call the them, fiscal conservatives. Call them the call them true conservatives. True conservatives. Yeah, okay. Okay. Uh, and they're going to be blue dog Democrats, and mm -hmm. you know, like like George Will, mm -hmm. uh, William Crystal, 
so ac academic people as well as, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. Jolly, the former congressman from, from Florida, who's basically is a Republican, saying, you better elect Democrats because we need a check and balance. <laughs> He's saying that as Republican. Just this morning he said it again. So he, that party of Jolly, of George Will, of Blue Dog Democrats, I think they're going to have 20 to 25 percent at least of the, of the electorate. So now you have 50 percent or so. Then you're going to have what I call the Pelosi Democrats, which are basically the traditional Democratic Party, which is going to be slow to change, which I think will continue to lose elections for the foreseeable future, uh, but, you know, who will be available for the right deal. And then the last party on the, would be over the other side would be progressive or social democrat. And the social democrats will want to do um, universal health care. Okay? And I think that the Democrats will join them on that. So they get a 50% on that. Right. And I think some of the troop conservatives will join them on that. Because mm -hmm. it actually makes fiscal Make, sense. It makes fiscal it, sense. Yeah. yeah. It, it is conservative. And yeah. in fact, most of what I would do, it would have been considered something like a Rockefeller Republican just 25 years ago. So to me, if we start to look at the breakup of the political logjam of the two-party system as a plus, I won't feel good that we went through this much pain to get there but I'll be glad when we come out the other side. We have got to break up this logjam. And the reason people are so upset with Washington, you could easily blame one party for 90% of the problems. But the truth is, the Democrats are part of the problem. Yeah, I mean, and Trump has been a long time coming. I mean, the, yes. the weaknesses in the whole political system have been yeah. so, generations. And yeah. So I don't think yeah. it's fair to say, well, the Republicans and Democrats are the same. They're not. Not even close. No. The Democrats have been unwilling, because of their fear of losing power, to really confront what's broken in the system. They're afraid to talk about it. And that, to me, is that lack of courage is something that people now are saying isn't good enough. That's why Gillum's candidate for governor. That's why Ayanna is the congressman soon to be elected because it's a Democratic she has, She's not running against anybody. No, she's just, she's yeah, in. Yeah, she's on a post. And, and that's why Ocasio-Cortez also. Cortez is in. Yeah. So those people, and by the way, I think Stacey in Alabama uh -huh. is running a great race down there. The best one, though, is Beto down in Texas. Oh, yeah, we love You know, Beto <laughs> in Texas. Beto O'Rourke. Yeah, Beto O'Rourke. Yeah, he's, what he's doing, which is really correct, he's not trying to varnish his comments, and he takes any questions. So when he's asked point blank, should you impeach him? He goes, yeah. Okay, next question. <laughs> That's obvious. Well, you don't have to have a long conversation about it. They ask him, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And he, and he, and he answers straightforwardly why he thinks he does as a progressive. Example, and, I, and this is a great one to end on. Look what Nike's doing. With Colin Kaepernick. This is phenomenal. Yeah, it's... it's... Because, and by the way, and I think it's smart from a business point of view. Oh, I think very, it's smart. very smart. Well, look at who's who's buying Nike. Yeah, it's not but, the NFL. Yeah, but, but you know, this is the they are under contract. With this the is NFL. the thirtieth anniversary of their Just Do It com uh, mm -hmm. campaign, and pick Colin Kaepernick, who I believe is being discriminated against by the mm -hmm. NFL, and I believe that the president trying to stop black athletes from bending a knee during the national anthem to protest violence in the black community, I think that's perfectly legitimate, and that's what many people now are saying from both sides of the aisle. And to me, I'm saying, gee, if we could get together and realize that, and by the way, the, the Nike contract has just got renewed for eight years. So, in the oh, NFL. And the, so, I know, the NFL is... is, is they're okay they, for they, seven yeah. and a half more years. <laughs> <laughs> they, they can't cancel that one. No, no they can't cancel it, and, and Kaepernick's lawsuit will be over within a year or two. Right. So, so to me, it's, it's so important that we start doing some things right. We can no longer trivialize our court appointments. We can't appoint people to the bench just because they'll parrot our political point no. of view. We have to have the best on the bench because mm -hmm. what's happening is we're hollowing out the federal judiciary. Mm -hmm. okay. We can't have it be that the federal government is at war with its largest states, California and New York alone, let alone Maryland, let alone Massachusetts and all the other states, that Washington and Oregon. So many people in this country, such an enormous percentage of people in this country, are absolutely adamant that we should not destroy our air and our water. And you can't have a federal government that seeks to do that. You can't have a federal government that's, that's going to try and clamp down in 26 states on medicinal marijuana. I mean, the whole thing is nuts. It's yeah. just crazy. So once you get past the crazy stuff, you go, okay, we, 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 we went on a bender. We got really drunk for, 
<laughs> several days there, and we, we lost ourselves. A couple of years. A couple of years. A couple of but, years. But we're going to regain our senses. Mm-hmm. Argentinians did. And we're going to put it back together. I'm really, really optimistic we can. Yeah, but we need a lot but of... we got to start. We need those worker ants, ants to be ready to get to work now and, and yeah. in the future. And, and we've got to get started. We've got to get started. And, and it's not safe to believe that if it takes us longer to get started, it's okay. Every day, as we said right. at the beginning, right? Every, every day is collateral damage. Every day there's more collateral yeah. damage. What a great way to bring it round about. Thanks very much, everyone. Tune in next month, and we'll see where we are. Hopefully we'll be in a happy place. And remember, if you have any questions or comments on today's show or anything you would like for us to address in the future, please contact us at info at worldbusiness.org, and we'd love to hear from you.